2014 is the International Year of Crystallography, and that's what we're talking about today here on Fuzzy Logic. We've got a very special guest with us from the Australian National University, Dr. Darren Goosens, and we're going to let you know what crystallography is, what it's all about, and what it does for us. All that and more coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this Sunday, uh, joining us for a very special show, as I said before, talking about crystallography, because 2014 is the United Nations International Year of Crystallography, which must mean it's reasonably important, I guess. <laughs> and uh, well, I like to think so. You like to think so. And that voice over there is Dr. Darren Goosens. Uh, Darren's joining us from the Australian National University. Thanks for coming along today, Darren. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Darren's, uh, well, he's uh, a bit of an expert on crystallography, knows a bit about it, uh, certainly knows much more than I do, Um, (laughs) so that's a start. Okay. I'm not sure that's all that difficult. (laughs) No, no, true, true. Um, And look, I'm really keen to get into it today because I... I, um, Obviously, when they decide these uh, international years, there's the reason behind it, Mm -hmm. and, and, and they must be something important for us, but I think... People, when they hear the word crystal, they think of, you know, hippies and and crystal healing and those little things that you hang in the window that reflect the rainbow of Roy G. Biv and that sort of thing. But, look, we'll get into what a crystal is a bit later on because let's start off with crystallography. What's what's crystallography really all about, Darren? Well, um, I guess that's true, isn't it? Probably people have some idea of what we mean when we say physics or chemistry, but crystallography might be a bit less... um, Familiar. Um, well, I mean, crystal is a crystal, and ography is is sort of drawing or picturing. So, I guess in a sense, it's the science of uh, understanding crystals and how they're built up, and you know what they look like at a sort of a microscopic atomic scale. Which sounds a bit dry, but I think in fact it's uh, it's uh, a bit more interesting than that. One of the things that makes crystallography important is that because it relates to crystals, and because crystals crop up everywhere. It sort of cuts across the sciences. Physicists need it. Chemists need it. Biologists need it. People in medicine need it. It draws its lot, a lot of its important results from mathematics. So it really cuts you know, right across the sciences. I, I'm not sure that psychologists get a lot out of crystallography, <laughs> but um, you know, people, uh, people who are uh, doing the physical sciences certainly do. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of different applications for crystallography, and I yep, guess... Yep. Um, Look, we better we better define, um, you know, with what is crystallography, with what are crystals? Yeah, because yeah. it's the study of crystals. So, what are these yeah. things we're studying? Right. Well, so I mean, I thought, uh, what are crystals? Is one question. I think uh, you were talking before about, um, you know, um, little shiny things hanging in the window. Yeah. And of course, ironically, glass is not crystalline. 
Um, glass okay. is in fact not crystalline. I'll talk about that when I, I talk about how you define a crystal. Yeah. But uh, I just thought I would talk about what is crystalline first, just to give people a okay. sense of how often you encounter them. Yeah. Metal is crystalline. Okay, so like oh, just sheets of metal. Absolutely, it is. Okay. What a lump of metal actually is, is if you look at it at a microscopic level, is a whole bunch of tiny metal crystals yeah. all sort of joined together. Yeah. It doesn't look like a gemstone. Like a diamond is obviously crystalline, yeah. right? And probably be, probably people think of salt crystals, sugar crystals, things like that. Yeah. But in fact, um, metal is crystalline, right? It's made up of tiny grains, and each individual grain is a crystal, and they're all sort of melded together to form a big piece of metal. Okay. Um, ceramics are crystalline. Yeah. Your teacup, um, your false teeth. Um, so if you're having a cup of tea, you're yeah. having it in a crystalline substance. That's right. Adding sugar, which is a crystalline substance, and drinking it past your false teeth, which is a crystalline and substance. And quite possibly you boiled it in a, me- in, a, in, a, in a kettle, which is made of metal, which is crystalline. Crystalline as well. That's right. <laughs> um, so, in fact, they're, they're, it's not just shiny things with nice reflective faces. Yeah. It's actually much more common than that. I mean, um, give you another example, rocks. Something as common as a rock is largely made up of minerals, and minerals are crystalline. And in fact, crystallography grew out of the study of minerals. People who want to know how to, you know, turn iron ore into iron, you know, they were working with minerals and and metals and things like that. Um, Your body contains bones, they're substantially crystalline, your teeth are substantially crystalline, whether they're false or not, in fact. (laughs) Um, There's a a mineral on your teeth called uh, their hydroxyapatites. And in fact, um, some crystallographic studies have shown that one of the things that fluoride toothpaste does is that um, the fluorine in the toothpaste, fluorine is very reactive. Yeah. Now, there are appetites on your teeth, and some of these are hydroxyapatites, so that has an OH group, so that's oxygen and hydrogen. But when you put the fluoride on your teeth, it pulls off the OH and it puts a fluorine on. The fluorine bonds more strongly to your tooth. Than the, oxi- than the hydroxy does. Uh-huh. So it protects your tooth. Oh, okay. Okay, so crystallography relates to your toothpaste. Yeah. Um, but even beyond that, um, if you've ever used a computer, well, silicon's a crystalline material. Yeah. In fact, silicon's one of the most perfectly crystalline materials we can make. Um, and so, so those materials that we're interested in that are crystalline. Yeah. yeah. But the other category is, oh, and I should mention trees. Trees are crystals. Trees, you've heard of cellulose. Cellulose is the sort of material that trees are made of, and Mm. and a large fraction of the wood in a tree is made of crystalline cellulose. Wow. So crystals really are everywhere. Yeah. Um, But uh, So that's when we've got a material that's already crystalline, and we might be interested in studying that, and that's something that a crystallographer might do. But some materials which don't occur naturally as crystals, we actually make them into crystals on purpose in order to study them. And this is where you get into the realm of medicine, right? You know inside your body you've got proteins. People talk about, you know, what what was the protein part of your meal this morning? You know, did you have (laughs) meat or eggs? Well, um, so proteins are really important molecules in your body, you know. Another very important molecule is DNA and all the other, you know, components that actually make life. And when they're in your body, they're in solution. So they're dissolved in a complicated mixture of salts and other molecules and things in your cells. But say we want to actually study those molecules and know what they look like at the atomic scale. What's the actual arrangement of atoms? Well, we might want to... You can't just zoom in on a molecule until you can look at it, right? It's just too small for that. You can't just put it under a powerful microscope and look at it. So the sorts of experiments you do is you shine a beam of some sort of radiation on it and the radiation bounces off 
and you work backwards from where the radiation goes, tells you what shape the object was. Okay. You can't do that with a single molecule. It's just not big enough. It doesn't scatter enough radiation. And we'll talk about how you do crystallography a bit later. But it doesn't scatter enough radiation, so what you need is a lot of molecules. But if you just had a random blob of them, yep. then your signal would be a random blob. Yeah. But if you can grow a crystal of molecules, and in a crystal the molecules are all rigorously sort of regularly organised, yeah. then you get a rigorous, regular, regularly organised signal off the crystal, and part of that signal is due to the, you know, repeating of the molecules and tells you about how far apart they are. But part of that signal tells you about the shape and size of the molecules. Okay. So if we've got a molecule we want to study, even if in, where in the natural state it's in solution, if we can form it into crystals where we've got billions and billions and zillions of copies of the molecule, then the signal of the experiment's big enough that we can measure it and we can work it out. Yeah. And that's often... Uh, that's, so that's how we work out things like the crystal structure of a drug, like aspirin, or the crystal structure of, of a protein, you know, that actually helps your body to function at all. Yeah. Okay, so it's just a way of uh, making it much easier to see, you know, yeah, yeah. in that sort of order. That's I, right. I suppose that's the big thing about what makes up a crystal, isn't it? It's that ordered structure yeah, to yeah. it um, that, that defines it as a crystal. Is that right? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, uh, you could, I mean, one way of thinking about a, a crystal is... Uh, and this is correct 90% of the time, or 99-point-something <laughs> percent of the time. So I'm being very much being a scientist at the moment. Yeah. You hesitate to say... There's always exceptions. There's always exceptions. Yeah. And, you know, we'd be lying, we, I'd be lying if I said this was always true, but and we'll, uh, if we have time, I'll, I'll come to that a bit later. All right. But, but for most purposes, you can define a crystal as being a solid, which is built up from a whole pile of identical little building blocks. When we say little, we mean little, you know. A nanometer is 10 to the minus 9 of a metre, so there's, what's that, a billion? A billion. So there's a billion nanometers to take up a metre. Yeah. And a typical building block is of the order of one nanometer on a side. Okay. So they're pretty small, right? Very tiny Lego. Very tiny. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But that's right. So if you imagine, you know, you had a Lego set, the world's most boring Lego set, which was made up entirely of red blocks that were only... And only had one of those little bumps on them. You know, so it was a one-by-one one Lego block. Yeah. You know, I think you do get them in Lego yeah, sets. Yeah, occasionally. But imagine if that was the only block you had. That would look, it'd be quite boring. It'd be a bit difficult yeah. to build a Starfighter with that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but, um, but if you stack them up, right, you stack them up, yeah. and then you made a big cube out of the small cubes, right? Yeah. Then that big cube would be like a crystal, and the small cube would be the building block, which we call the unit cell. Yeah. Right? Okay. And- because it's Lego, it can stack really well together. Yeah, that's and right. Same thing with the that's right. And, the, and the important point there would be there would be no gaps. Okay. You've got to have no gaps between yeah. the unit cells. And obviously they can't overlap because you can't make the blocks interpenetrate. No. Not unless you want to sort of squash them out of shape, which, you know, your kids might do, but you wouldn't do that on purpose. No. Um, a good way of thinking about these sorts of things is actually, I mean, we're talking about three-dimensional crystals. Yeah. But you can have a regular array in two dimensions. Okay. Just think of, I don't know, a chessboard. Yeah, right? so it's squares just sitting yeah, next to each exactly, other. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? Yeah. Or, or imagine a, a just tiles on the floor, right? Yeah. Um, you know, where all the tiles are the same shape and size. Yeah. Right? So, you know, you can, um, you can obviously tile a surface with squares. You could tile it with rectangles. Yep. You could tile it with hexagons. Yes, you yeah. could, right? Yeah, or, di- or diamond right. shapes or and something. Diamonds, yeah. 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 But if you, for example, wanted to use a pentagon you would find that if you tried to tile your two-dimensional surface with pentagons, you would have gaps. 
Yeah, it wouldn't fit perfectly. Exactly. So what we actually and what we actually find is that there are certain rules about what shape a unit cell, the basic building block, is allowed to be. Okay. And what symmetry it's allowed to have. Yeah. And there are certain kinds of building blocks you can have in it on a two-dimensional crystal. And there are certain kinds you could have on a three-dimensional crystal. And there's only a finite number yeah. of them before you just have exhausted all the possibilities. So you can have more than just the single unit red block. But there is, there is a limit to the, the, how big your Lego kit is to make a crystal. Well, a crystal in, a, in, in any single crystal, all the building blocks are identical. Yeah. So it's like having one Lego kit where all the blocks are white cubes and another Lego kit where all the blocks are green cubes. Yeah. You don't mix, if you mix the two together, that's a thing called a co-crystal, and that can exist too, but we won't go into okay, that. we're going into the detail. exceptions again. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but going back to the two-dimensional one, Yeah. Uh, in fact, so you've got your basic building block of your two-dimensional crystal, and they can have certain symmetry. Symmetry is extremely important in crystallography. Uh, in fact, it began life really as, as a... very much from geometrical considerations. But just to think for a moment about symmetry, imagine... You know, you've got, and this is something anyone could do. Imagine you've got a square of paper. Yeah. Right? You can fold that square onto itself exactly by folding it in half vertically or in half horizontally or in half on the diagonals. Yep. Yep. Or you can make it, or if you rotate it by 90 degrees, it would look the same as it did before. Yes. Yeah. So that square has, so when you can fold it in half on top of itself exactly, another way of saying that is if I put a mirror exactly halfway down my square, one half gets reflected in the mirror and it would look like the whole square. Yeah. So you'd say that square has a mirror plane. Yep. And in fact, it has four mirror planes because it's got a vertical one, a horizontal one, and the ones on the two diagonals. Yeah. 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 And then if you rotate it by 90 degrees, it looks the same. 90 degrees, 90 degrees, 90 degrees, you get back to where you started. So you can rotate it by 90 degrees four times. So you would say it has a four-fold rotation axis. That makes sense. Right? <laughs> Triangle would have a three-fold rotation axis. Yeah. And a pentagon which we can't tile the plane with, but it still has symmetry. It has a five-fold rotation axis. Sides, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but obviously a rectangle also has symmetry, but it has less symmetry than a square. Because if you rotate it by 90 degrees, a rectangle doesn't look the same anymore. No. And if you no. fold it on a diagonal, it wouldn't overlap with itself. Uh, so a rectangle right? is only twofold. That's right. Yeah. Very okay. good. There you go. You, <laughs> I'm learning. You'll you, you get to your bachelor's <laughs> degree soon. Um, yeah, so, so different unit cells have different symmetries which is a very important uh, aspect of crystallography. And one interesting thing about the two-dimensional unit cells is that all the possible symmetries two-dimensional unit cells can have exist either as uh, wallpaper patterns or patterns on um, rush matting in various Egyptian tombs from thousands of years before Christ. (laughs) They they basically exhaustively explored all the possible symmetries. So Egyptians were crystallographers? Oh, I think anybody who's ever doodled in an office and covered a page with pen has probably done a little bit of uh, crystallography. I would argue that unless you're actually interested in, in how the larger crystal arises from the smaller unit cells in the smaller building blocks, that you're not so much doing crystallography as just sort of fiddling about. But, um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that's what a crystal is, It's, it's in, in the first instance at least. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So that's, yeah, so that's what crystals are and... Um, I think that's defined it pretty well. And then when we're doing crystallographies, we're looking at those crystals and trying to work out how they all kind of fit together. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, why is that such an important thing for crystallographers to to look at how the the crystals actually form, the structure of them? Uh, Well, um, I guess... Well, if you're interested in materials where 
they are crystalline. So putting aside the things where we where we make them into crystals in order to to study them, yeah, right, like the proteins. But imagine we're interested in you know, uh, well, ceramics. You know, uh, the structure of minerals in the ground, which relates to things like uh, how the earth, you know, if you, you know, look, imagine uh, the way in which even the whole crust of the earth deforms under forces and pressure. Part of that is going to relate to the properties of the individual uh, minerals that make up the earth's crust. And so ultimately it will relate to the crystal structure of those minerals. So we can understand how the properties of a material, a compound, uh, well, properties of a material, of a crystalline material, arise from the fundamental atoms in it. Okay. Right? And then we can understand how those properties arise, and then we might be able to use that knowledge to make that material, you know, modify the chemistry of the material. We might, once we know how the atomic structure leads to the properties, we might go, oh, I, from my vast knowledge of chemistry, perhaps if we put a little bit of bismuth in for the lead, we will get the properties a little bit better. So you start modifying the materials, and this is how we make new materials with new properties. Um, A a particularly good example of why the structure is so important is good old carbon. Right? Everybody, this is an example that everybody comes to sooner or later when they talk about (laughs) structure. Right? It's not just what atoms are in there, but how they're organised is really, really important. And the obvious example, as I said, is carbon. Most people will be familiar with graphite. Graphite is sort of that shiny grey stuff, yeah. you know. Um, and at it's an atomic scale, it consists of hex- sort of hexagonal layers of, of carbon atoms. Yeah. And these layers can slide over each other, and that's why graphite is slippery and is used as a um, lubricant. Yeah, or it's in our, um, what are lead pencils as yeah, well. Exactly, it exactly. just kind of washes away. As that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, now, another form of diamond that a lot of people are familiar with, and I'm sure a lot of us would like to be more familiar with, <laughs> Is diamond. Yes. Right? And diamond is almost the opposite of graphite. It's transparent. It's very, very hard, whereas graphite's quite soft. It's shiny. I don't think anybody would want to use finely powdered diamond as a lubricant. I think that would be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. In fact, it's used the opposite way. It's used to cut things. You know, you get diamond cutting wheels to put on on your saw or your angle grinder. So so we've got graphite and diamond. They've got exactly the same atoms in them. The only difference is how they're arranged. And the physical properties could hardly be more different. I can guarantee you my wife does not wear a little piece of graphite on her finger. (laughs) So it's all just carbon, but put together in different ways. That's right. So completely different function. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the message there is that it's not enough to just know what atoms are in there. We need to know how they're arranged. Yeah. 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 That's that's fair enough, because I suppose, yeah, because with that structure comes the, uh, with the, yeah, with the form comes the function. Yes, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. And in fact, to use a couple of highfalutin words, uh, <laughs> people in material science and crystallography often talk about the structure-function paradigm, which is this idea that to know where the function, how the function arises, yeah. right? And that could and that could also relate to things like how the material behaves in a magnetic field or in an electric field or whatever. To know how the function arises, to understand it and therefore be able to improve it or change it, ideally you would like to know what the structure is because that will be what the function arises from so the structure function paradigm obviously you can get a long way with trial and error but if you want to design things a little bit more intelligently a little bit more efficiently then you want to start to come to grips with the basic arrangements of atoms yeah Mm. 
very interesting. Well, yeah, well, we might have to delve a bit deeper into to crystallography in a, in a second and we'll have a look at where it all came from and the history of it. You bet. But before we get into there, let's have a little bit of a music break. It's 24 degrees outside, 11.56am, and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic right here on 98.3 2XFM Community Radio throughout Canberra and surrounds. Broderick here presenting Fuzzy Logic today, and in the studio with me I've got Dr Darren Goosens from the Australian National University, and we are talking crystallography. We've talked about what a crystal is and what crystallographers do, but... Darren, you mentioned the Egyptians before and, and their drawing of patterns on the walls. Is that where crystallography started? Uh, well, no, I'm a, but I guess it's where people start thinking about symmetry, symmetries and patterns like that. And in fact, there are some amazingly complicated patterns of tiles on uh, some um, Islamic mosques, oh, which yeah. are, are, are quite show some amazingly complicated patterns of symmetry. But um, I guess, like a lot of things, crystallography sort of starts with the ancient Greeks, Everything like, like starts with everything. Greeks. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know where they looked at things like just describing different kinds of minerals. You know, yeah. some and uh, clearly some stones are shiny. Yes, and they have yes, it's, and it's they obvious. have well de- and they have well defined faces. You know, I mean gemstones and things like that are clearly different to other things. So yeah, people started realizing that you know everything wasn't the same. But um, and because I guess they're so pretty and shiny and all that, and anybody with small children will know how attractive shiny things are. <laughs> um, you know, crystals were often attributed with. Um, mystical powers and these sorts of things yeah which of course i refute utterly yes no we're not going to even even no honor that with anything today (laughs) no but you do get this sort of there's this intermediate period particularly in europe in sort of say from the 12th century to say the 14th 15th 16th where you'd get these books um uh, where there'd be a discussion of the mining of minerals the metallurgy to reduce you know the metal ore to a metal yeah um, what minerals tended to occur along with the ores to help people find them, you know, um, basically to help with prospecting and things like that. Oh, okay, and so then if you sun- see yeah. this mineral there, then you're likely to find this metal behind it. That sort yeah, of thing, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but then the same book would also tell you, you know, which crystals you needed to align your... Um, you know, from the left side to the right side of your body so that you would be more healthy. <laughs> so, yeah. So that pe- period where they were a little bit science but a, a little bit um, mystical as well. Yeah. Um, a very important figure in, in metallurgy, which and metallurgy and mineralogy are really the precursors to, to, to crystallography, was a guy called Agricola um, who wrote a book called De Re Metallica where, um, you know, he talked about, once again, mineralogy and geology and stuff. Uh, he worked... Um, spent some time working in silver mines in Central Europe, in particular in a place called Joachimstal. And the only reason I mention it is Joachimstal, the silver from the mines was coined into coins. I guess that's what you coin things into. <laughs> yes. Um, and these coins were called talas, which is the beginning of our word dollar. Oh, wow. So that's just a bit of hey. random information for you that I picked up at the mint. <laughs> um, then you come to a guy very famous for something else, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, who's yeah. quite famous as an astronomer. That's for establishing that the planets move in elliptical rather than circular orbits. And sort of a lot of his very careful observations laid the paved the way for Newton and his theory of gravity. Mm. But um, Kepler um, wrote a, a little treatise on, on snowflakes, which, of course, famously show these hexagonal six-fold symmetry. The, the thing was called, and I had to write it down, and I'm not going to give the Latin name, <laughs> just the translation. It was New Year's Gift or On Hexagonal Snow. Oh where he proposed the idea that snowflakes were hexagonal because that's the way you would pack things together. Now, if you, if you, if you uh, 
I don't know, go over to the fruit bowl and get out seven roughly similarly shaped apples or oranges or something. Mm. You put one in the one down on the table and you want to stack as many around it as you can. What you'll get around it is a hexagon. Yes, of, of right. This way. So yeah, he realised that he imagined that maybe the ultimate particles of water happened to be. I mean, he wasn't talking atoms at that time, no. but whatever the ultimate particles of water were, if they were approximately spherical, he thought, well, they would pack to give you a hexagon. Yeah. Maybe that's why snowflakes are hexagonal. Yeah. So that kind of thinking, linking the, the small structure to what we can actually observe in the everyday world is very much yeah. at the beginning of crystallography. So snowflakes are crystalline. They're crystalline form of... Well, ice is a crystalline form of water. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, there's a... I don't know how many kinds of ice there are. There's at least 12. There could be more. So there's 12 types of ice? Well, see, if you take your water ice... Yes. ...and you put it under pressure, for example, as you compress a, a material, the crystal structure that is sort of best able to cope with the pressure will be different at different pressures. Oh, okay. So if you take your ice and you put it in basically a big vice, it's yeah. a bit more complicated than that, but yeah. effectively it's a big vice, and you squash it right down, it'll actually go through what's called a structural phase change... All that means, it'll change from one type of crystal structure to another. Okay. And in fact, at the moment, I think they've found at least 12 different kinds of ice. 12 different ways of putting it all together. Water's incredibly complicated. It is. It is. Anyway. Back uh, to... Yeah. Back to... We've yeah, back done to the, Back to history, yes. We're, 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 we're on the We're up to the late 18th century. The okay. Modern crystallography really begins in France, um, at about the time of the French Revolution, yeah. uh, with a guy called uh, René Juste Aoui. And I apologise to anybody who speaks French. Um, <laughs> it, uh, where he really looked at crystals closely... And, and he really, he, he measured, for example, he'd grow a crystal, say of salt, yep. and measure the angles between the different kinds of faces, because they don't always grow as nice, simple cubes. Okay. And then he actually played with, we talked about Lego blocks before, he actually played with cubes and built up a model and then measured the angles between the faces of his model and realised that you could explain all those angles he was seeing on the crystals if you, had a mo- if you built the crystal up with tiny cubes. Ah. So just for a moment, okay, so if we've got our cubes and we build them up, we can mm. obviously make a big cube out of small cubes. Yeah, that's it. And then our big cube is going to have 90 degrees between the faces. Yep. But we could also make a pyramid out of our small cubes, right, by making each layer a little bit smaller than the one that went before. Yep. And now our angles aren't all 90 degrees, right? No. Our pyramid is sitting on a flat base, so the angle from the base to one of the sloping sides is going to be more than 90 degrees. Yeah. Right? And... By changing the arrangement, the way you stack it up, you can make all sorts of different angles between the faces. Mm. But you can't make any angle. No, there would be a limited number. That's right. And he found that there was a correspondence between the angles he could get by stacking up cubes and the angles that he saw on a real real crystal. And so that was really the first definite evidence that you could build up a big crystal from lots of tiny identical building blocks. So that's really where crystallography begins. And then through the 19th century, a lot of the mathematics behind the symmetry, what kind of symmetries you could have, what shape the building blocks would be allowed to have if they were going to fill up three-dimensional space, that kind of stuff was largely established during the 19th century. One guy called Barlow predicted, after Dalton had sort of proved using chemistry that atoms were a pretty good, pretty solid hypothesis. Yeah. Um, then people started saying, well, hang on, if we've got atoms, maybe we can explain the shapes of crystals by building up atoms. And somebody suggested what the crystal structure of sodium chloride might look like in about 1883. Okay. And then it was when X-rays came along in 1895, Willem Röntgen in Germany mm. discovered X-rays uh, and won the first Nobel Prize for physics in 1901. X-rays can be, you, you can be used to actually look at the atomic structure of a solid. 
Okay. They have a very short wavelength. And X-rays like light, electromagnetic spectrum, just like visible light, just yeah. like radio waves, but the X-rays are very high energy, very short wavelength. Yeah. And when the wavelength is very short, basically the size of the thing you can look at depends on the length of the waves. Okay. So that's why radio waves from radio stations, lot, fairly long waves, particularly yeah. on AM... They can be up to kilometres. That's long. right, and, and they can bend around mountains. Yeah. But shorter waves, like you get on TV, aren't as good at that, which yeah. is why you, know, you can often pick up AM radio or shortwave radio in places where you can't get any TV signals. Yes. And if you keep making the waves shorter and shorter and shorter, then eventually they even get stopped, if you like, by an individual atom. And then they hit the atom, if you like, and then scatter off it. And when they're where they go, you work backwards from where they go to work out where the atoms are. Mm. And so, so X-rays are down at that sort of wavelength. That's right. Right. So um, in 1912, Max von Lau in Germany did the first diffraction off a crystal and got individual spots coming off, right? Rather than a continuous blur of X-rays, he actually got particular spots which related to the crystal structure. Yeah. But he didn't work that out at the time. It was the next year when Lawrence Bragg, who, will, who um, grew up in Australia... Um, did some experiments and then took the extra step of working backwards from the spots to work out what the crystal structure was. So basically working out, well, it must be hitting something to get those spots and working out yeah, and, how it would have And happened. if the atoms were further apart, for example, then mm. the spots in the pattern would... He, he can measure the distance between the spots in the pattern. Yep. The, so the pattern of spots uh, of, of X-rays coming off the crystal. He can measure what directions the beams of X-rays come off in. He can measure the angles between them. And you can do some maths using a thing not surprisingly called Bragg's Law, <laughs> which, which um, connects the spacing between the atoms in your crystal yeah. to where you find the spots in your measurement. Okay. So if the spacing was different, you wouldn't see, you'd see the spots in different places. Yeah. And he got a... So Von Lau got his Nobel Prize in 1914. Bragg got his in 1915. Yeah. And because he... Oh, at the ripe old age of 25, I might add... A Nobel Prize. Yes. Gee. He did the work at 23, got the prize at 25. He's still the youngest laureate. Uh, I feel so useless at 27. I'm not going to mention how old I am, but I, <laughs> I don't know you make me feel. Um, but, yeah, so, and he did the work actually in conjunction with his father. And to my knowledge, it's the only father-son team that shared the same Nobel Prize. Oh, there you go. Um, a little bit of history, if you like, there. The William Henry Bragg, the father, came to the University of Adelaide in 1885, so before Federation. So Australian English, I don't know. We can um, lay some sort of claim yeah, to it. Oh, we do bet, that in Australia. You bet, you bet. He, he set foot in the country. Yes. Um, breathed some of our air. I think that counts. Yeah. Um, he, he married an Australian girl in 1889, and he wasn't a man to waste time. Lawrence was born the next year. And uh, he did his undergraduate at the University of Adelaide. So yeah. he was educated in Australia. But when Lawrence was about 18, they went back to the UK. Yeah. Bragg, Lawrence Bragg, the younger, so Henry Lawrence. We had um, William Henry and William Lawrence. Right. So they both were Williams, but Henry and Lawrence Bragg. Uh, Lawrence worked at Cambridge where he did his most important experiments there. And uh, yeah, he did SALT in 1913 and, um, and in 1915 got his Nobel Prize at 25. I actually met his daughter a couple of years ago, oh, La really? Lawrence Bragg's daughter. She came to Australia when one of our crystallographers, Peter Coleman, won the uh, Bragg Medal of the Society of Crystallographers in Australia and New Zealand, mm. and she attended the presentation ceremony. So is she a crystallographer herself? No, she's not, but it, it was one of those strange things where you sort of think this stuff is all in the past, mm. and yet you meet the daughter of the guy that invented it. It's like meeting Einstein's daughter. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it makes you realise that it's not that long ago. No. You know. No, these people were yeah. around reasonably recently and, and yeah. it's amazing how much we've developed in, you know, that's right, just a hundred right. years. You know, so from then on people started doing uh, more and more complicated things, you mm. know, looking at benzene, for example, so organic things, things yeah. which was really important for understanding how carbon chemistry works. Yeah. Carbon chemistry is really, really important because it's organic chemistry. Um, Dorothy Hodgkin, a very famous crystallographer, so there's a lot of... Um, who uh, published the structure of penicillin in 1949 oh, yeah. and vitamin B12 in 1957 and did some important work um, on... Uh oh, it's escaped you. It's escaped right, yeah. Anyway... Oh, insulin, insulin. Oh, yes. And and she won a Nobel Prize in 1964, but I I saw these quotes and I had to bring them up. So in 1964, she's won a Nobel Prize for her contributions to solving the structures of some really important molecules. Mm. And some of the newspaper comments. The Daily Telegraph said, British woman wins Nobel Prize, £18,750 prize to mother of three. (laughs) She's not a scientist. She's she's a mother mother of three. three. The Daily Mail was even better. It simply said, Oxford housewife wins Nobel. Oh, dear. So this is the sort of respect that the women get in science. And while the Observer described her as an affable-looking housewife. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, oh, it gets better later. But uh. we'll, So this is one of the great scientists of the last hundred years, was, yeah. a, was an affable-looking housewife. Um, so other, great, other work that happened after World War II was things like um, determining structure of things like haemoglobin. Or immunoglobulins, which are part of your immune system. So learning how the immune system works, learning how the blood carries oxygen around the body. Crystallography has contributed to things as fundamental as that. Yeah. And and then, of course, probably one of the biggest... Crystallographers that I know of is uh, the the DNA. Ah, uh, yes. Which was uh, another fantastic woman. Yes. Um, whose whose name is going to Rosalind uh, Franklin. Franklin. Yes. It's funny you should mention that. Um, <laughs> I just happen to have some notes here on oh, that. Good. So so the the we generally think I guess the the, the key players in the DNA story are uh, there was Rosalind Franklin and a guy called Morris Wilkins who actually came from New Zealand. They were working at King's College in London. Yeah. And at the same time, Francis Crick and James Watson, who were the people probably most famous mm. for this work were working at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge which was being um, overseen in fact by Lawrence Bragg. Oh wow. Well Lawrence Bragg after he'd done the initial work he, he, he obviously did some, during the two world wars he worked you know for the cause mm. but between the wars he, he initially developed a lot of work in mineralogy once again so earth's crusts made of rocks, what do the rocks look like at the atomic scale but then he decided to start moving towards organic things you know the crystallography of, of living or, or molecules important for life. Yeah. And that was the direction he took the lab in, and that's where Crick and Watson were working. And, um, you know, for my personal sense is that uh, the structure of DNA and also the other important structures that were done at this time are, are really some of the most important science that was done in the 20th century, you know, yeah. because of the impact on health and the understanding of the body. But um, the story is quite interesting. So Rosalind Franklin started working on DNA when Morris Wilkins, who was the other guy in the lab, was away. Yeah, um, on you know working in working in Europe for a while, mm. he came back and and he saw her there working on DNA, and she was female, so he just assumed that she was a technical assistant working in his lab, <laughs> when in fact that she she was a parallel scientist working with her own research group. Yeah, but um, Wilkins did share some of her results with Crick and Watson, and possibly didn't okay it with her first. Right. So he did seems to have had a bit of a sense that he was the boss. Yeah. Um, and in many ways he was the boss. I mean, Rosalind Franklin wasn't allowed to use the dining room at the university because she was female. Yeah. Um, 
yet she was a brilliant um, experimental uh, uh, scientist. Uh, her photograph of DNA was in itself a technical triumph. She she had to crystallise it, work out how to crystallise the DNA. She actually did it by, in a sense, drawing fibres out of solution. So if you imagine okay. um, spinning wool, yeah. right? individual wool fibre is very fine, yeah. but you spin them together, you make a strand of wool which is quite substantial. Mm. But if you look at that strand, most of the fibres are going to be running along the lengths of the strand. Yeah. So that's a bit like what they did with the DNA. They got all the DNA molecules and stretched them out and, and sort of twisted them, to, well, twisted them, bound them together into a sort of a fibre, and mm. then they did the diffraction off that fibre. Okay. And if you Google Photo 51, that's all you need to type into Google. Photo 51 was the famous diffraction pattern. Mm. Been described as the most beautiful experiment or one of the most beautiful experiments ever done. Okay. We might have to put that up on our Facebook page, I reckon, Darren. Photo 51. Um, Yeah, but so Franklin did these crucial experiments and and collected the crucial data. Um, She also worked on things like tobacco mosaic virus and polio. Oh, wow. Um, And the the DNA work... uh, Oh. Yeah, I did want to mention the, the actual scientific papers that were published by Franklin and Gosling and Wilkins and Crick and Watson were all published in the 1953, volume 171 of the, Nature, of the journal Nature. And Nature have made these papers freely available. You don't need a subscription. You don't need to be at a university. So anyone okay. can go to the Nature website. In fact, if you just type Nature DNA 1953, it'll bring up the page that has all the papers on them. Oh, fantastic. And they're remarkably readable, actually, yeah. quite good. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, the, the Nobel Prize for DNA was given in 1962, mm. but Rosalind Franklin had been dead four years by then. She died of ovarian cancer at the age of 37 uh-huh. in 1958. Um, and it's actually quite interesting because the citation doesn't mention her. Oh, wow. And the Nobel Prize, I don't know if you know this, the Nobel Prize is never given to teams of more than three people. Oh, okay. So it's fascinating to think if she had been alive and there'd been Franklin, Wilkins, Watson and Crick, yeah. one wonders who would have missed out mm. based on the treatment that we've yeah. seen. Anyway, um, so crystallography has continued to produce important results. Uh, in 2009, um, a group including Ada Yonath, uh, used crystallography amongst other techniques to try to understand how the ribosome works, which is the engine in cells that actually assembles amino acids into proteins. Okay. So it's, it's fundamental. It's sometimes referred to as the engine or the factory of life. Yeah. So, so crystallography has been very vibrant for a long time, produced yeah. a lot of results, really important in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So there's a potted history. Yeah, well, look, I think... In a moment, we need to find out more about how it's done mm-hmm. and, um, and and how these experiments are actually performed, and then uh, and then we can follow some more of crystallography from there. But we'll have a short break before we do a little bit more music. It's twelve eighteen right here on ninety eight point three FM Two Double X Community Radio. Broderick here with Fuzzy Logic, and joining me in the studio is Dr. Darren Goosens here to talk about crystallography today, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, very excited to have you here because we're making our way through the history of what is crystallography, how it's all happened, and now we're at the point where I want to know how do they actually do it all? Right. How do we work out these crystals? How, how they? Yeah, yeah, fair comment. Together. So obviously, X-rays are important. Mm. I mean, before that, it, people could sort of infer things by measuring angles and faces and stuff. So it was a bit like taxonomies, classification. But once we had X-rays, we could actually start to look in detail. So as I said, X-rays are like high energy light yep. and the wavelengths are short enough that you can sort of see individual atoms but it's not like getting an image of the atoms what you get is what's called a diffraction pattern mm. so you put your beam of x-rays into your crystal so let's imagine we have a beam of x-rays like you know uh, a thin sort of 
well, beam, like a laser beam, like yep. if anybody's had a laser pointer. And it, it comes in and it hits the crystal, and every atom in the crystal sort of intercepts a little bit of the X-ray, the X-ray, and then, and then, it, and then scatters off the atom. And sometimes when the X-rays scatter off the atom, they'll, they'll combine together and give a signal. Sometimes they'll combine together and cancel each other out. So what, if you put, say, a screen sensitive to X-rays behind your crystal, you'll get spots on the screen quite sharp individual spots and the positions of the spots you can work backwards from that to work out what the positions of the atoms must have been so it's kind of like you know uh, balls hitting an object and on like on the pool table and they divert off and you're working out where they hit on the wall i suppose there's uh, a bit of that i mean yeah yeah, you could imagine obviously if you throw a ball at something and it comes straight back at you and you know that there's a wall in front of you that's right whereas if you throw it and it bounces off to the sides then maybe the wall's at a bit of an angle yeah you know so yeah there's a bit of that in it yeah um and, and people can see diffraction themselves if they do happen to have a laser pointer. Oh, okay. I should point out that you need to be careful with laser pointers because yes. you've got to keep them out of your eyes. But, for example, if you if you simply reflect it off the CD, go into a room. I tried this myself a couple of days ago in preparation, so I know it works. Yeah. You can go into a, a, a room. It doesn't have to be really dark, but a little bit dim helps. And simply bounce it off the surface of a CD. Yeah. CD has parallel tracks. They're, they're reasonably evenly spaced, so mm. it's a little bit like the evenly spaced atoms in a crystal. Okay. So you bounce the light off. The light of the laser is similar in wavelength to the spacing between the tracks, so you'll get a pattern on your wall of intermittent bright spots and dark areas. Bright okay. spots, and, and in fact, if you knew what wavelength your laser beam was and you knew how far it was from your disc to the wall and how far it was between the spots, you could apply... apply Bragg's law and work out how far apart the tracks are on your CD. Oh wow! And in fact, I did this too. <laughs> I've got if, if you've got an LP or a forty-five, oh, they're, they're not very re- they're not very reflective, but, yeah. but 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 you can get the same effect off them. Oh wow! And if you do that, you'll see that the bright spots are much closer together. Mm. That's because the tracks are further apart. It's an inverse yeah. relationship. Okay. Yeah. That's so the cool. so the positions of the spots tell you the shape and the symmetry of your basic building block. Mm. And then the intensities of the different spots tell you what's actually inside the unit cell. Yeah. One application of this is called residual stress. So because the positions of the spots tell you the size of the unit cell, you can use it to work out if the material you're looking at is under stress. Imagine you take an iron bar and you bend it. Around the outside of the bend, the, the material will be stretched. Yeah. Around the inside, it will be compressed. And yeah. you can actually see this in a diffraction pattern. Oh, that was so you can by you getting the diffraction pattern of lots of separate little volumes within a sample. Mm. They're called voxels by analogy with pixels. <laughs> um, you can actually uh, work out which bits of a material are under stress and which bits aren't. Yeah. And this is used in things like working out why, say, an air, an airframe in an aeroplane might fail. Okay. Or whether a turbine blade is reliable, yeah. things like that. So it's used so in industry, used on a, on a large engineering. Scale. Yes, yes. Yeah. At Anstow in Sydney, they can put entire sections of pipeline on their instrument to look at stresses in pipes yeah. due to wow. things like welding. But that actually brings me to the Nobel Prize of two thousand and eleven. Okay. So when you've got a crystal, you do your diffraction experiment. You get these little sharp spots on your screen. Mm. So, in fact. It's now been turned on its head. The definition of a crystal is now a solid that gives you sharp spots in your diffraction pattern. (laughs) And that's because of the Nobel Prize in 2011. But to tell that story, we actually have to go back in time to to, to 1982. An Israeli um, guy was doing electron diffraction. So that's just the same, except you use a beam of electrons. Right. Um, It's not just the same, but it's near enough. The (laughs) The principle's the same. And he was looking down an electron microscope. He was working in the USA. His name was Danny Schechtman. 
Yeah. And, um, or Daniel Schechtman, I should be a bit more respectful. <laughs> uh, and he saw a diffraction pattern, so a pattern of spots, that had tenfold symmetry. So if you rotated it by, se- by 36 degrees, it looked yeah. the same as it did before. Okay. You rotate 1036 as is 360. Mm. And as we discussed earlier, it, five-fold symmetry wouldn't quite stack in terms of a two-dimensional or a three-dimensional stacking yeah. of symmetry without any gaps. The same thing would apply to tenfold, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah, ten is really just five-doubled, that's yeah. right. That's right. So, so he described this as a, as a, well, it looks like a crystal. It's got a sharp diffraction pattern with lots of little spots in it yeah but it's impossible yeah so they called it a quasi he called it a quasi crystal um a pretend crystal yeah like yeah, yeah. Well, i'm not i don't know what the technical meaning of quasi, quasi is but anyway yeah. uh, he um he was called into the office at the place where he worked mm. and told you're bringing us into disrepute with these ridiculous results get out oh because it can't be possible that's right it yeah. can't be possible and his boss actually waved an undergraduate textbook at him and said have you read this <laughs> And he went back to Israel, and it took him two years to get the work into print, uh, because he, you know, which is actually not unreasonable. When you find an extravagant result, it should be being tested by the rest of the community, you know. Yeah. And he did, and he convinced everybody, and he got it into print, mm. and he had Nobel, Nobel laureate Linus Pauling, one of the most important um, chemists of the 20th century, um, declared that he was a fraud. Yeah. Uh, quite quite aggressively called him a quasi scientist, <laughs> and it takes quite a lot of guts to stand up to the most important people in the world, you know, and say no, I'm right. Yeah, uh, there's a, the, it's like imagine if you if your teacher said, you know, um, I don't know. Imagine if you were at a pub trivia night. I'm stealing this from Mark Steele. Imagine if you were at a pub trivia night and they said, you know, who was the star of uh, of Lawrence of Arabia? And everyone said, well, it's Peter O'Toole. Mm. You said, no, not a Burt Lancaster. And you know you're right. Yeah. Everyone's else, or you know it's Peter O'Toole, and everyone else is saying, Burt Lancaster. Yeah. And then you look up the encyclopedia, and it says Burt Lancaster. But you know and then Peter O'Toole says, it was Burt Lancaster. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know that it was Peter O'Toole. Mm. It takes a bit of guts to stand up and stand up and stand up, and yeah. he did. And eventually other people started to see these things, and people grew large crystals you could actually look at. And in 2011, he obtained the Nobel Prize um, for, uh, crystal- for, well, for chemistry yeah. for these results. And that's why we now have to define a crystal. Mm. A crystal is now a solid who has, which has a diffraction pattern that consists of sharp spots. Right, because right? it could be... It doesn't have to be able to be built up of repeating units, yeah. at least not in three dimensions. <laughs> But I'd, perhaps we don't have time to talk about that. So, no, I don't think we have time to get in the fourth dimension, so to speak. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so that's how you do the experiments. But um, I, I love the the persistence of, of well, that, uh, Danny that, there. That's to, good science. Yeah. You know, that's just saying. Well, I know it's a good experiment. Yeah. It doesn't matter how important you are. Mm. It doesn't matter how many of you think that. I've done the experiment and I'm right. Yeah. And this is this is where 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 evidence evidence is everything. Yeah. And I suppose he just built up that evidence over time. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, but, but where do people do these kinds of experiments? Yeah. Um, well, we typically do our work at places like synchrotrons and and uh, nuclear reactors. Okay. So, so it, what is a synchrotron? Okay. So, most X-ray experiments are actually done in the laboratory with an X-ray. X-rays generated in an X-ray tube, yeah. which is kind of like a fancy light bulb. Okay. But if yeah. you want to do something that's a bit more exotic, a bit more difficult, you'll go to a synchrotron. So synchrotrons are particle accelerators. Okay. If you make an electric charge move in a circle, well, if you accelerate an electric charge, it throws off photons, so it throws off light. light. Yeah. If you accelerate it hard enough, the light becomes more energetic. 
So if you accelerate it really hard, it throws off X-rays. Okay. And it throws off really intense beams of X-rays. Right. So synchrotrons are essentially really fancy sources of X-rays. The yeah. first one was built in um, 1945. As- Australia established one in 2007 down in Melbourne, the Australian synchrotron. Um, so a typical experiment at a synchrotron involves applying to do the experiment three months before you need to. Wow. Yeah. Right? Finding the funding to get on an aeroplane if it's in another country. We yeah. often do experiments at the Advanced Photon Source in the USA. Yeah. That's a big institute. That's a billion-dollar piece of kit. Wow. It's a big synchrotron ring. It's not like the Large Hadron Collider, which is another sort of order of magnitude again. Yeah. But, but it's, it's about a kilometre around the ring. Wow. So they provide these big tricycles for, for getting to and from your experiment, <laughs> which is quite cool. Um, you go there, you work for sort of three days solid. Yeah. And believe me, by the time you've been working on a beamline for 24 hours solid, a giant tricycle just looks like the funnest thing in the world. <laughs> um, you do your experiment, you, you work extensively. You get three days on the instrument. That's mm. not three working days, that's three times 24 hours. Yeah, because so you just work and work and work. That's right, because your time will be so valuable that's on that right, machine. That's you don't right, want to sleep. Right. And then you get the data and you come back to Australia and you analyse it. Um, there yeah. are some big synchrotrons around the world. There's one in France, 850 metres around, called the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility. Yeah. And we have one of my PhD students who's working there now. Okay. And there's another one in, in Japan, which is almost one and a half kilometres around. So that's, yeah. that's synchrotrons. We also do experiments at neutrons, neutron sources. These are neutron reactors. Okay. Neutron diffraction works the same as X-rays. Yeah. Only it's neutrons, which are particles from the nucleus of atoms. Yeah. So to get at them, you need to split atoms open, nuclear reactor. The first reactor was 1942, Fermi's famous squash court at the University of Chicago. But then they, the first neutron diffraction was in 1945, and the bloke who, who, one of the blokes who did that didn't get his Nobel Prize until 1994. Oh, wow. So 48, 49 years is one of the longest waits from the experiment to the prize, <laughs> but he did get it in the end. Yeah. Australia established HIFAR in 1958, and now we have OPAL. People can tour Opal. You just need to get on the Ansto website yeah. and you can investigate um, going to Sydney and touring it. Okay. And we go there to do experiments as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got about 30 seconds left for you, Darren. Ooh. In those 30 seconds, what's, what's the cutting edge now? Where's crystallography going Crystallography now into the future? is going... Or it's already gone to Mars. It's gone to Mars. The Curiosity Mars rover has an X-ray diffractometer on it. Oh, wow. Which is used to analyse the rocks on yeah. the surface of Mars to learn about the history of Mars, whether there's been life on Mars, that sort of stuff. Yeah. X-rays used in things like forensics. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, Lassa Noren at the university, he looked at um, deposits in an engine of an aeroplane uh, that had crashed to work out if it had been being maintained properly. Oh. Ooh. Um, we obviously, we can do things like solving the structures of proteins, yeah. um, which is important in medicine, looking at the structures of pharmaceuticals, um, and that sort of stuff. And as time goes on, we're able to do bigger molecules, smaller crystals. Eventually, maybe we will be able to get a diffraction pattern from a single molecule using a thing called a X-ray free electron laser, which is so powerful that the, the American military is also investigating them for use as a death ray. Um, wow. To shoot down satellite, <laughs> to, to shoot down, to shoot down things like um, missiles and things like that. So. Um, yeah, crystallography is everywhere from here to Mars. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah. And so much more in between. Yes. Well, we've covered a lot today, listeners. Yeah. Uh, Apologise for that. Oh, no, it's fantastic. But if you've got more questions about crystallography, send us a question for our Ask Fuzzy column, askfuzzy at zoho, Z-O-H-O, Z-O? 
ho.com um, and uh, that's published in Canberra Times every Sunday so if you've got a question there we might pass it on to Darren and he can answer it for you in Not the a Canberra problem. Times but thanks very much for joining me on air today Darren it's been fantastic and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the, the year of 2014 the International Year of Crystallography oh you bet fantastic thanks very much for coming along and thanks for tuning in listeners uh, you've been listening to Fuzzy Logic your science on a Sunday <laughs>